Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from our pastor at Hatchbend Apostolic Church. to touch you as a vessel to receive the word of the Lord. I want to receive the word of the Lord, but pray that God will just help me to deliver what is on my heart tonight. Can we pray together? Lord, I love you. I really thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be here in this house tonight, to feel your holy anointing, to feel your strength, to feel your power. Oh God, just to feel the warmth of your embrace. But to not feel that alone, God, but to feel that in this collective and corporate company of other believers. I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. And I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. And you can be seated. Brother Newburn mentioned a moment ago, Brother Howard Goss, who is certainly a foundational stone in the world of Pentecost. I was reading a, an article several years ago. Uh, I believe it was entitled something of this nature, uh, Six Degrees of Separation. The principle behind that was that everybody's connected to somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. And uh, I'm not here to promote that book or theory, but several years ago I was in a meeting and a man who is an esteemed elder among us today shared a story when he was uh, 19 years old. He and uh, his wife were just obviously newly married at that age and were evangelizing. They were in Detroit, and uh, they wanted the pastor they were preaching for said, I want you to go with me. We're going to cross the bridge, go over into Canada, and we're going to pray for a friend of mine. Little did they know as they walked down the hall of this humble home and they got to the bedroom, there was Brother Howard Goss, and uh, they were called on to pray for him. And to sing, they were they they were noted for their singing as well as preaching, and and so they sang, and uh, it's it's really interesting to be able to feel connected to our roots, and to feel connected to to the beginning. Amen. God is good, and He has blessed us tonight. And I just want to share something from my heart. I want to speak to you. I'll I'll read some scriptures in just a moment, but I want to share to you tonight. My subject is going to be this from a servant's point of view. A servant's point of view. With very little variation throughout the Gospels, um, we read a common phrase or a common statement that holds a world of truth. And so you can find at least, if not word for word, you can find the principles, both Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record it like this. He that finds his life shall lose it, and he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. And uh, so we see this conflicting, in our view, a conflicting statement. But yet, all of the Gospels, and even John, although he words it differently, the principle is the same. 
And that is a message that if we will put ourselves last, he will put us in first place. And so that's a message that runs against the grain of our modern culture. As a matter of fact, it's a message that goes against the grain of humanity at large, with or without the Holy Ghost. Amen. Because we have a treasure, but it's in this flesh. And so it's a message that kind of goes against our common thinking. Because we live in a world that says, you know, we've got to step on whoever or whatever we need to to stand a little higher, gain a little more ground. But there's a powerful principle that I believe that Jesus is pointing to within these passages. And I believe that that in part, obviously, I'm, I'm sure there's many forks in the road and could take this many different directions. But I believe one major principle that he points to is the heart of servanthood, the heart of servanthood. Servanthood, I believe, plays such a key role within the kingdom of God. A few nights ago, my wife and I were privileged to be in a, a part of a conference, in a conference, and uh, I, I know this is a big statement, but I really believe, my wife and I have talked about this several times since that night, that it was certainly one of the greatest messages I've ever heard preached, and we agree, and, and uh, I've heard a lot of preaching in my lifetime, and I've heard a lot of good preaching, but uh, a very powerful, impacting message. But I believe the thing that gave so much prominence to the message was not just the message, but it was the messenger. And uh, I thought about that as, as he was preaching, because not only is he one of the greatest speakers and preachers and pastors of our day, but he is also a man with a true servant's heart. And so long before I really got to know him, I knew him for many, many years from a distance, but I watched him. I watched him carefully serve, serve others. A man that was uh, very prominent, is very prominent in our movement, just, not just the United Pentecostal Church, but, uh, and not even just in the world of Pentecost, but certainly reaching far beyond those walls, had a servant's heart. And he was always quick to give somebody else something that was his or a seat that was his. And not for show, there was no showmanship behind it. There was just a true sincerity of a servant's heart. And so I couldn't help but think about that a few nights ago as I listened to him bear his soul, challenge uh, that congregation, and I think our movement at large. But I thought there is the key. It's not the message as much as it is the messenger. Jesus was still leading his disciples to Jerusalem, and as they went, he reminded them of what would happen to him when they got there. But again, they were unable to understand what he was saying. They couldn't comprehend exactly what it is he was speaking of. And um, they were not troubled enough to set aside, if you read the scripture, they were really not troubled enough about what the Lord was trying to tell them to set aside their own wish or their own desires because they had a personal dispute among these holy men of God of which one of them was the greatest. Now, before we shake our heads and before we cast that stone of judgment, we have all found ourselves there. Kind of wondering who's going to, you know, there's a sort of life has a pecking order of sorts. And, and uh, you would think that they would have forgotten their own plan. And you would think as much as he was trying to share with them what was before them and what was before him, that they would have concentrated all of their effort and all of their desire on him and in that moment. However, humanity, as it often does, gets in the way. And so Jesus 
in order to teach them and us, I believe, a lesson on honor, Jesus set a child before them. And he explained this profound spiritual principle, and that is this, the way to be first is to be last. And so you can imagine we're trying to get the object lesson here, and the way to be last is to be, uh, the, way, the way to be uh, to the head of the line, so to speak, is to become a servant of all, to understand the value of a, of a servant's point of view. If we think about a child, certainly this would only, I think, pertain to an unspoiled child, but if we think about an unspoiled child, they are the example of submission, and they are the example of humility. There's an innocence about a child because a child knows one thing. They may not know a lot of things, but they know one thing, and they know that, there's, that they are a child, and so they will act like a child. And the secret of attracting, and I believe that's the secret of attracting love and care is because there is a sense of vulnerability. And so it is easy to love someone in that condition. But a child that tries to impress an adult in an adult world by acting like they're beyond where they are doesn't get that same attention because there's, there's something about humility that, and innocence that draws people. And so it is with the hand of God. I believe that true humility, true humility is, uh, means knowing ourselves. That means knowing our strengths and our weaknesses. It knows our limitations. I believe that true humility accepts ourselves. That is not to say that we refrain or, or we give up on bettering ourselves, but it's just accepting ourselves. I believe that true humility is being yourself. It's just who you are. And there's something about just being yourself, just being real, that has a sense of attractiveness all of its own. And then true humility has that aspect of giving yourselves to others by making yourself available. The world's philosophy is that you're great if somebody else is working for you or if somebody else is serving you, if somebody else is doing all the work and you're just doing all the pointing and all the clicking then you must be great. That's the world's concept. However, the message of the Lord is that greatness comes from serving others because there's something about a servant's point of view. If we have the heart of a child, then, then we have very little difficulty with having a servant's spirit or a servant's heart. If we have the attitude of a servant, then we're going to be like the children of the Lord, and we will indeed be what we've been called to be, and that is representatives of Jesus Christ. We represent the Lord to the world. So one thing that we have to understand is this, that it is not necessary to perform great miracles, or it's not necessary to do wonderful things to prove our love for the Lord. I believe that love is proven every day and most likely in the most simple forms. It's just true love. True love, as someone aptly said, true love will keep you true. And so we are true to the Lord. And so when we receive a child or the Bible talks about compassionately sharing a, a cold cup of water. I was reading that just uh, this, this week, Monday or Tuesday. And then we are showing that we have that humble heart. It's that servant spirit. And there's just something unique that we see and that we find from a servant's point of view. After all, we're serving the Lord, and that is the highest honor in all of the world. David said, and I know I quoted a lot, but David said, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Amen. That the Lord would hear us in prayer, that the Lord would be concerned, that the Lord would understand. Amen. 
I know there's a little suspicion that may be merited suspicion, perhaps in all of us, that um, that the world is listening in or tuning in somehow. I know that, uh, you know, we've talked about things in our home. The next thing you know, they come up on your Facebook feed. <laughs> Amen. I don't know if that really happens or if I'm just suspicious that it happens after people got to talking about it now. I don't know. But there's one thing for sure. While that may or may not be true, I'm not here to debate that. I know that the Lord listens. And I don't even have to utter it in order for it to come up on his feed. It's there. It is written down. The Lord knows the thought and the intent of our heart. And I know there's power in vocalizing what we need and making our needs known. But I'm thankful that when we do something in the name of the Lord, that we are representing him and he knows the, he sees and knows the desire of our heart and he, it is his pleasure to fulfill that. Not, not every little wish. God's not into keeping a wish list or, or uh, providing a wish list, but we're serving the Lord. That's the highest honor. And he is going to take care of us. And so when we are out and about every day, we are representing the Lord when we minister to people. Now, I, I want to maybe back up that maybe a little bit too spiritual of a word to say when we minister to people because you probably envision laying hands on somebody. But, but we minister to people often by the ministry of presence. There's something powerful about the ministry of presence. As a matter of fact, sometimes that may be the more beneficial ministry in certain situations is just being there. I have said perhaps to some that are sitting in this audience tonight that, that I, I'm sorry for not having a response, but I don't know what to say and I don't want to mess it up by trying to make up something. I don't want to mess up what God may be trying to do right now because I feel like I've got to be God and say the right thing and do the right thing. But we are serving the Lord a high honor. And so when we minister to people, whether that is some physical act or whether it is just a ministry of presence, we have no idea, or we certainly should, that's my point tonight, that we are representing Jesus Christ, that we are representing the Lord to Him. And so when you walk in the hospital room, I know this is a little more physical, but when you walk in the hospital room and pray for somebody, when you hold their hand, you and I are representing Jesus Christ. I know that's not how we see it, and we don't feel like we levitated into the room, and to be sure we're not going to levitate out of that room, God's just going to use flesh as we are. When you walk into a nursing home and pray for someone or encourage them, we are representing Jesus Christ to them. That's what the, I'm in the word of the Lord tonight. When you reach your hands through a bar in a, in, a, in a jail cell to pray for somebody, you're representing Jesus Christ. It doesn't seem churchy, and it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem spiritual at times. I pray for people in the hospital. The only thing you've got is a, a little curtain pulled between you, and there's eight people over visiting with the next person in line. It didn't seem churchy. It didn't sound churchy. It didn't even feel churchy. But I was called on to pray for them. I was there to lay hands on them and anoint them, not draw attention to that moment, but you're representing the Lord. When you visit someone in their home, if they're shut in, whether long-term or short-term, when you walk into their home, can I tell you that Jesus walked in. You represent the Lord. There's something powerful to be experienced from a servant's point of view. 
you're going to see things that you could not see otherwise. It's at that intersection that we represent the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I've, I've met people, of course, in different places and, and uh, certainly in our community. Uh, it's more likely that I'm just going to be in casual clothes or work clothes. And, and uh, sometimes I'm a little taken. I've got, I'm, I'm in the, the hardware store and somebody introduces me as their pastor. And I, you know, I don't know really what to say about that. You know, <laughs> sweat stains on my shirt and I've, I don't look the best and don't maybe even smell the best. And I say, well, I'm not, I'm, I'm not in my Sunday uniform, but I'm honored to meet you. Amen. But we're still representing the Lord, even in, even in that condition. I'll take this one step further by saying this, that the way we treat others in the family of God, that's a serious thing. Because, because God wants us to have peace with one another. We're representing the Lord to one another. And, and it's not just that foreigner. It's just not that stranger. And that's just one reason that it's so important that we represent the Lord well. According to Mark chapter 9 and verse 33 we can find that the disciples were somewhat struggling with this. As a matter of fact, Mark 9 carries a powerful message, and I believe a warning for all of us to deal drastically with sin issues in our own life. Whatever it is in our lives that makes us stumble, to be sure, could cause others to stumble, and that has to be removed. We have to deal with that. And so the Bible talks about if, your hand offends you. I mean, this seems so radical, doesn't it? But if your hand offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, then pluck it out. If your foot offends you, then cut it off. Because they got to be removed if they're, if they're causing sin to come to the body. Now, these are valuable items I just mentioned. We, we wouldn't want to lose anything. But we certainly want, wouldn't want to lose that. But, and the Lord is not certainly commanding that we physically remove our eye or our hand or our foot, etc. But, but he's making a statement, a, a profound statement. And that is, is that when that sin comes from the heart and you've got to deal with that. And what he is saying is that sin is the inner person. That is the inner person and that's, that can be like a, a tumor to the body. It has to be dealt with. This, this is not going away. You've got to deal with this. And so it seems radical. It seems absurd that we would cut it off or that we would pluck it out. But that Jesus was trying to drive home the point of how serious this is. You can't let this lie. And so we have to deal with the spirit of self-importance and and we have to embrace a servant's spirit. You know, there are some people in life, they're self-appointed in this position, but there are some people in life that just feel like it's their place to keep everybody else in order. They're, they're just professional wing clippers. <laughs> I just made that up. Either the Lord gave it to me or it came out of that pool of nonsense. But anyway, just probably come out of that pool of nonsense. Just professional wing clippers. They just see somebody getting, they think in their opinion, a little bit elevated. And they, they just need to trim you up and bring you back down. But you don't have to worry about people getting too lifted up because life will take care of most of that. Life will take care of most of that. But we've got to deal with self-importance because we can really, really come face-to-face -face with who we 
aren't in the face of things that life throws our way and embrace the servant spirit because it's the servant that's what the Lord can use as a servant spirit I was um, um, I think it was this weekend was in a service it was in, in a service and uh, we've been in a lot of church <laughs> so you're just going to you're just going to have to bear with me we were in a service and there was a young man a young lady that came introduce themselves to me and and um, the young man just looked very familiar to me, but I just couldn't place him. And um, so when we, we were introduced, and um, I, I shook his hand, and I said, you, you look familiar to me. And, um, and then we kind of went on the conversation. And in a few minutes, I looked to him and I, again, and I said, you, you really look familiar. I just can't place it. And so other people were there in the group talking and and. Uh, so in a moment, I came back to it again. I just couldn't get, I couldn't get away from him. And I said, you really look familiar to me. And he kind of dropped his head. He said, well, he said, uh, you met me this summer. He said, I was, I was driving the white truck at the campground hauling trash. And I said, well, God bless you, young man. And I want to just tell you something, that I've put as many miles on that white truck hauling trash as you have. Amen. And I said, I want to thank you. I did remember him then because then I saw the dirty clothes and the ball cap pulled down on his head. <laughs> he wasn't all dressed up in his Sunday best, the servant's spirit. And I said, he said, I really enjoyed, he talked about how much he enjoyed working those camps and things of that nature. And I said, whatever you do, don't ever stray away from that. Don't ever lose that. I said, my wife and I have made more friends mopping floors and sweeping floors and, and working. We've made more friends that way than any other way because, you see, that's what the Lord can use. So in, under, in order to underscore the importance of this message, I want to turn our attention to a familiar passage of Scripture. Um, I'm going to read a few verses. I may skip through them for their familiarity and, and for the sake of time. But John 2 tells a story. The Bible says in John 2, 1, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the Bible says that the mother thought of Jesus, and she thought of him. And, and, uh, and, and, the, and she said unto him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, What have I to do with thee? I mean, what's, this doesn't have anything to do with me. And, uh, but her mother, his mother, did not even hear. She was not offended by that moment of, of, of indifference, it may, we may think in human terms, but she just quickly turned to the servants and to those servants she said, whatever he says to you, do it. Well, you're talking about painting with a broad brush. Whatever he says to do, do it. And the Bible says that there were set six water pots of stone after the man of the purifying of the Jews contained two or three furkins. And Jesus said, fill the water pots of water and they filled them to the brim. Then he said, draw out now and bear this unto the, unto the governor of the feast and they bear it. And I just want to pause right here and I know through the years I have talked about this or brushed up against this. But this water was the purification of the Jews. And so this water... Um, was water to wash their feet and their hands and their face after traveling dirty and dusty roads to come. And so this was not clean water. This was not pure water. These were not clean vessels. And so he, they filled them to the brim. And, and uh, then the, the servants were called on. The ruler of the feast tasted the water that was made wine. 
which knew not whence it was. He didn't know the source. He didn't know where it it came from. Not, Not at all. But look at this. But the Bible says, but the servants which drew the water knew. They knew. He didn't realize what was going on behind the scenes. He never knew they ran out of wine. But they knew. I'm talking about the view from the servant's point. Amen. The uh, servant's point of view. And he said unto them, every man at the beginning sets good wine. But, and, and, we have, and then wait till everybody is well drunk. And then they bring out which is worse. He said, but you've done this backwards. You have kept the good wine for last. And this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cain of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed on him. Now in verse 11, it's, a, it's interesting that the Bible says this was the beginning of miracles. We know this was the first miracle, but I often say I want us to look at the, uh, at the story with fresh eyes. I know it's a very familiar passage to many of you. Jesus said, fill the water with pots with water. They filled them to the brim. He said, draw out now, bear to the governor of the feast and Just this food for thought, I will leave you one more time. Can you imagine being one of the servants on that day? Because they had already had the commission. The mother of Jesus says, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. And so they're in a pretty vulnerable place. And now they realize that this is muddy and murky water. And, uh, and you put yourself, this is a serious assignment to give the water or to give this to the governor. And how do they decide? How do they decide on who's going to do this? Did they vote? Did they draw straws? Was there someone in the crowd that says, I'm just brave enough and bold enough? But because we got to go back to what the scripture says that the governor knew not where it came from, but they knew they were privy to the whole story all along. Amen. I would have hated to have that responsibility that day. You don't know where. I don't know where the water turned to wine. I mean, was it still muddy water on the way? <laughs> From, I, I'm, I'm being very serious. I'm not being cynical at all. At what point? When the Bible talks about the disciples that broke the bread and, and, they, and they just kept giving out the fishes and the loaf and they broke that and it became, it, it was in the hand of the Lord. I mean, where exactly did that miracle take place? We don't have the answer to that. Of course, we don't know if it was water uh, all the way till, till the very end. I mean, did it, did it smell like water on the way to the governor's lips? We don't know. But we do know that at some point, at some point, somebody's got to deliver this. I believe for the sake of those servants that it was what it was until they got there. Right. I mean, that's how our lives are, aren't they? I mean, we, we walk along, we're looking for the answer, looking for the answer, looking for the answer, but the answer never comes until we need it, but it's never a second late. It may have been between the cup and the lip. I don't know, but the Lord came through right on time. But it's, it's, it's not the job any of us would have been looking for, but his response was that, that you have saved the best for last. Now, only Mary and only Jesus and only the servants knew what was really going on. But the servants that drew the water they were eminently aware. I mean, they're more invested in this really than Jesus and, and Mary at this point. I, mean, I realize we're not taking anything away from the Lord, but they're more invested physically than anybody at this point. But I want you to notice something with me. The bride and groom, they remain anonymous. So it's not likely Jesus did this miracle for them. 
and, and the families of the bride and groom are not mentioned, so it's not likely that Jesus did this miracle for their sake either. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there, but she understood his mission of life. That's why she stepped and inserted herself into this situation. I, I'm not sure that, so I'm not sure that the Lord did this miracle for her sake as he, either, because she already knew. And the reason I say this is simple. There must have been something that made Mary know that Jesus was going to do this miracle to begin with, because she said, whatever he says, do it. So what was it that prompted her to speak with such a confidence on this occasion? It wasn't the ruler, or it wasn't for the bride. I don't believe it was for the groom. I think it's entirely possible that Jesus recognized there's an elite group standing over here, and they don't have titles. There's an elite group in this group. <laughs> And it's not governor. It's not that crowd over there gathered around the fountain. It's not those sitting around the candles. No, I'm going to reveal my supernatural power to the people that we think would probably deserve it the least because he was drawn to their servant spirit because they the, their command was whatever he says, do, do it. And you know what? The Lord had to watch them do a few things. They were taking up that water. They were filling pots to the brim. And so I believe that this passage ought to speak volumes to us about things that draw the attention of the Lord. And so do we want to see signs, miracles, and wonders? Then I believe that we ought to have a servant spirit and just see what the Lord will reveal to us. Amen. I believe it's that pliable and moldable heart that God can really use for his glory. The Bible says in Matthew, and I'll quickly go through this, Matthew 25 and 34, the Bible says, then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he says, for I was hungered and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. Naked, he said, and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him saying, Lord, when did we see thee hungered and feed thee or thirsty and give you drink? And, and, and we saw thee a stranger and took thee in naked and clothed thee or we saw thee sick or in prison and came to thee. And the king shall answer and say unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it to the least of these, my brethren, and you have done it unto me. So you can't give a cold cup of water to someone and the Lord not get absolute, be drawn to that. That's the response of the humble. If we contrast that against the writing of James, this is what we see, James 4 and 6, he giveth, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud. Simon Peter weighed in on this as well in verse number five, verse number six of chapter five. First Peter, he said, younger, submit yourselves to the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. Be clothed with humility. Here's why. Because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Amen. And so if we go all the way back now to the beginning of our text references this evening, those common threads that run through the Gospels. He that finds his life shall lose it, and he that loses it for my sake shall find it. So we come down to two principles, two alternatives. We can spare your life or we can sacrifice your life. Amen. There's no middle ground. No middle ground. Again, it's been referenced tonight earlier in our service, but we're here tonight standing atop of some very broad shoulders who understood how to do more than just spell the word sacrifice. They really sacrificed. 
And I, I'm not here to, honestly, I, I'm not here to offend anyone, including myself. But when we think about sacrifices today versus sacrifices of yesterday or yesteryear, they pale by comparison. Amen. I was maybe even mentioned this before, but Thursday night of our general conference, Brother Bernard was just sharing many things from their family, his mom and dad and other missionaries as he was talking about global missions a little while and, and just the sacrifices and that, that his own mother was taken out of a service. Just, she was just pulled out of, a, out of a service by thugs that were there to rob them and thrown in the street. None of us have that testimony. And I'm not saying that we have to have that to gain and make heaven our home. But I sit and listen to things like that and I just say, Lord, help me to not be so willing to complain. Amen. And just say, Lord, help us. I'm going to ask our musicians to come. I want to share something with you in closing. In 1972, NASA launched an exploratory space probe that they call Pioneer 10. According to Time Magazine at that time, the satellite's primary mission was to reach Jupiter, photograph the planet and its moons, and somehow, or not somehow, but then to beam that information back to Earth. And so, of course, in 1972, scientists of that day regarded this as a bold plan because at that time um, no earth satellite had ever gone beyond mars so they were afraid rightly so that many things um, once they got this far into space many things would destroy this space probe before it reached its target however Pioneer 10, the mission Pioneer 10 accomplished its mission, but it accomplished so much more because it went past that giant planet on November, in November of 1973. And there was something about the immense magnetic atmosphere of Jupiter that hurled this space uh, module at a higher rate of speed. And so they were just hoping to get there, get a little data, send it back. And they did not take into account. And so it began to soar this space probe at an unprecedented rate of speed toward the edge of the solar system. It soon passed Saturn, then passed Neptune, and finally Pluto. By 1997, 25 years after its launch, Pioneer 10 was estimated to be more than 6 billion miles from the sun. And despite that immense distance, Pioneer 10 continued to beam back radio signals to Earth. Now there were times that it would take as many as 9 hours at the speed of light to get that signal, or the, nearly the speed of light. The writer of Time Magazine article said this, perhaps the most remarkable fact of all of this 
is that those signals that were beaming back to earth successfully were emanating from an 8-watt transmitter. And so to put that in perspective, 8 watts is about as much power as your old-fashioned nightlight would burn. The new ones won't even burn that many watts. But the old-fashioned nightlight. He went on to say, and these are his words, the little satellite that could was not qualified to do what it did. <laughs> Engineers designed Pioneer 10 with a useful life of three years if it doesn't get destroyed on the way. But if it makes it to its target, we feel that it can do this for three years. But it kept going and it kept going and it kept going. And by simple longevity, its tiny 8-watt transmitter accomplished, radio accomplished more than anyone ever thought possible. And so I said all that to say this tonight. I think that when we offer ourselves to the Lord, we could just say, well, what are we against all of this? I mean, if you were to be able to animate that 8-watt transmitter and say, no, we want you to go 6 billion miles from here and send us back data, I'm sure that little transmitter, if it could, said, I can't do that. But when we put our hands in the hands of God, amen, God works even through someone that just, you may say, well, I'm just eight watts of ability. That's all right. The view of a servant is, un is incredible, and it's immeasurable. I'm going to ask you to stand. You see, God can't work through somebody who quits. Amen you got to just keep pressing on. And let's just be very frank tonight. Can you say to yourself, perhaps there's an exception to someone in this room or somebody joining us but online, but, but who would have ever thought in your wildest imagination that you would be where you are? God has blessed. That's not to say there's not been struggles and bloodshed and and in times, wounds, we may, in, in all honesty, never totally heal from. But God has just blessed and blessed because we just submitted, if it were, that eight watts of ability to the hand of God that was so much bigger than us and said, Lord, do what you will. Those servants never dreamed when they showed up to that wedding. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, says, do whatever he says do. They had no way of knowing the powerful bubble they were stepping into. I don't think, I'm, I don't know. I just read the scripture with human eyes and with human understanding. I put myself in their place. I'm not sure how the person got elected to go be the one to hand the final cup to the governor, but he had to be shaken on the way. You know, I'm just not one to try to over-spiritualize everything. I don't think he walked up there speaking in tongues. I don't think he gave a message in tongues. Amen. His knees may have been knocking together, but he walked with faith. Whatever he says do, do it. And it was his hand that held the cup. And somewhere in that process of obedience, God miraculously stepped. Thank you.
This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806 or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.